Welcome to Quanta Magazine's podcast. Each episode, we bring you stories about developments in science and mathematics. I'm Susan Vallett. We often think of memory as a rerun of the past, a mental duplication of events and sensations that we've experienced. In the brain, that would be like the same patterns of neural activity getting expressed again. For instance, remembering a person's face might activate the same neural patterns as the ones for seeing their face. In some memory processes, something like this does occur. But in recent years, researchers have repeatedly found subtle yet significant differences between visual and memory representations. The latter showed up consistently in slightly different locations in the brain. Scientists weren't sure what to make of this transformation. What function did it serve? And what did it mean for the nature of memory itself? Now, they might have an answer. That's next. Imagine you're in a lab where you've synthesized ancient DNA sequences and spliced them into modern bacteria just to see how they'd react. They needed each other, but they didn't want each other. (laughs) So... You know, it was like a very complicated relationship unfolding in front of me. This isn't Jurassic Park or some sci-fi movie. I'm Steve Strogatz, and this is The Joy of Why, a new podcast from Quantum Magazine that takes you into some of the biggest unanswered mysteries in science and math today. Join me on The Joy of Why as we explore these questions. We may not have all the answers yet, but I'm pretty sure the curiosity to figure them out is in our DNA. Subscribe to The Joy of Why wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop every other Thursday. A new finding published last October in Nature Neuroscience suggests that in many cases, a memory isn't a facsimile of past perceptions that gets replayed. Instead, it's more like a reconstruction of the original experience based on its semantic content. That insight might help to explain why memory is so often such an imperfect record of the past. The finding could also provide a better understanding of what it really means to remember something. Jack Gallant is a computational and cognitive neuroscientist at the University of California, Berkeley. Gallant had spent the better part of a decade developing functional magnetic resonance imaging, or fMRI, tools and models for studying the human visual system. fMRI machines can measure changes in blood flow and electrical activity in the brain, so neuroscientists often use them to study which parts of the cortex respond to different stimuli. One of Gallant's graduate students in 2012, Alex Huth, used the Gallant Lab's cutting-edge techniques to analyze where the brain might encode different kinds of visual information. Huth, Gallant, and their colleagues had participants watch hours of silent videos while inside fMRI scanners. For the silent movie clips that they're watching in the movie experiment, I had actually gone through and annotated each second of these movies with the things that appeared there. So all the objects and actions, nouns and verbs, each second, which was a very long process. But then using those annotations, I could essentially treat those as if they were words that were spoken during that second, right? So basically what the model would see then is that like, you know, if you see a clip with some people riding horses past a mountain, 
it would be as if you had just heard somebody say to you, horseman, horse, walking, road, mountain, sky. They segmented the data into records for roughly pea-sized volumes of brain tissue called voxels. Then they analyzed the scans to determine where hundreds of objects and actions were represented across the cortex. They found remarkably consistent patterns in all the participants, patterns that formed a generalized map of visual meaning. It confirmed the identity of some regions of the visual cortex that were already known from earlier research, such as areas selectively responsive to faces or places. But it also turned up hundreds of other selective patches for the first time, regions that responded to images of animals, family members, indoor scenes, outdoor scenes, people in motion, and more. Huth didn't stop there. He and his team decided to try something similar, only this time using language instead of visual stimuli. So taking sort of that representation of the movie data, we could then build models of the movie data that use the exact same feature space, the same structure as the models that we built for the story data. They had people listen to hours of podcast recordings. Then they assessed how their brains responded to the hundreds of concepts they'd heard in those stories. The semantic network that the researchers compiled and reported in Nature in 2016 was another patchwork map, a mosaic of meaning that tiled large swaths of the cortex. Gallant says this was a really new thing at this scale and dimensionality. And the reason that it was not known before is nobody was looking for it because, you know, why would you look for it? With these two cortical maps in hand, they realized that the studies had used some of the same participants. Really? It was just a happy accident. That's Alex Huth, who was part of the study, now an assistant professor of neuroscience and computer science at the University of Texas at Austin. Having the same participants cleared the way for them to ask, How were the visual and linguistic representations related? Previous imaging studies had identified rough regions of overlap, which made sense. We assign labels to what we perceive in the world, so it's fitting that our brains would combine those representations. But Huth and his colleagues took a more precise approach. They modeled what each individual voxel responded to among nearly 1,000 semantic categories found in both the video and the linguistic stimuli. As in the earlier research, they found evidence of overlap, but then Huth noticed something strange. He had made a visualization of the 2016 data that allowed him to tap into each voxel to see which language-based categories it responded to. When he zoomed in on a region selective for places, he realized that only voxels at the anterior edge of the region, closest to the front of the brain, represented place words. Apartment, house, car, floor, farm, California. The back part of the region didn't represent this linguistic information at all. Here's Huth. This was weird. This was like a a sort of surprising thing. And this led us to think like, you know, maybe there's something more interesting going on here. So Huth called upon the data from his 2012 vision experiments. Some of the subjects that we had used for the vision study were also subjects for this language study. So we just happen to have data sets on the same people doing these like very long fMRI scans. It's like a, a lot of data. 
Huth saw that in this place-selective area of the cortex, the back part responded exclusively to place-related images. When he looked in areas closer to the front, both place images and place words were represented, until at the boundary of the region, only words evoked brain activity. This was just as he'd seen when he was toying around with his 2016 visualization. There seemed to be a gradual, continuous shift from visual representations of places to linguistic representations over just a couple of centimeters of cortex. Here's Huth again. This was kind of the exciting like aha moment here, was seeing these patterns pop out. So we see it sort of around each of these different place areas. We saw it in a bunch of subjects. We just kept looking at subjects and kept seeing the same pattern pop out. To test how systematic the pattern might be, Sarah Popham, then a graduate student in Gallant's lab, developed a statistical analysis for the team that looked for these gradients along the border of the visual cortex. They found it everywhere. For every one of the hundreds of categories studied in the experiments, the representations aligned in transition zones that formed a nearly perfect ribbon around the entire visual cortex. Here's Gallant again. There's a match between what happens behind the border and what happens in front of the border. That alignment alone was remarkable, says Wilma Bainbridge, a psychologist at the University of Chicago who wasn't involved in the study. It's actually very rare that we see borders and delineated regions in the brain. And even in this paper, if you look at the individual subject data, you'll see that the quote-unquote borders differ for everyone. So they're generally around the visual cortex, but really this sort of very neat pairing around a border is incredibly rare. The pattern was also systematic across individuals, appearing over and over in each participant. Adam Steele is a postdoctoral fellow who studies perception and memory at Dartmouth College. He says this latest paper is really exciting. The most exciting part about it is defining this real boundary in the brain that seems to be a general organizing principle between where some type of perception, like visual perception, is taking place and the transition into this more domain, general, abstracted representation. This transition from like a domain specific to a domain general representation is like super exciting. And there was some research that had hinted at that as happening in specific areas of the brain. But the fact that it's a general organizing principle is what really makes this paper shine. It shows how the visual cortex interfaces with the rest of the cortex through these gradients. Many parallel channels each seem to preserve meaning across different types of representations. In hierarchical models of visual processing, the brain first extracts specific features, such as edges and contours, then combines those to build more complex representations. But it's been unclear how those complex representations then get increasingly abstract. Sure, visual details might get pieced together to create an image of, say, a cat. But how does that final image get assigned to the conceptual category of cats? Now, this work hints at how that progression from visual specifics to greater abstractions might start to happen at a more granular level. You remember Jack Gallant. Excuse the reporter's interruptions. The real advantage of this is it shows, look, we are and can, as neuroscientists, slowly build up from the perception system, slowly 
grafting on more and more complicated aspects of the brain. And what we see is that the principles of design are not really changing all that much. The outcomes are changing. The representations are changing because as you graft on more and more nonlinear layers onto this nonlinear system, you end up with a more highly nonlinear system. So that's to me the big demonstration of this. It's like we're gluing together conceptually for scientists, a part of the brain that we really understand well to another part of the brain that we barely understand at all. One traditional theory of brain organization posits that representations of semantic knowledge occur in a dedicated region. Think of it as a hub-like command center that receives information from various systems, including perceptual ones. But the results from Gallant's team suggest that these different networks might be too intimately intertwined to be separable. Chris Baker is with the National Institute of Mental Health. Our understanding, our knowledge about things is actually mm-hmm. somewhat embedded in the perceptual systems to a certain extent, which is, I think, what the results here tend to agree with. That discovery might have implications for how humans' abstract knowledge of the world develops. Huth says perhaps language-based representations are partly patterned off of perceptual ones, and this alignment serves as part of a mechanism for how that might happen. Ev Fedorenko is a cognitive neuroscientist at MIT. An interesting claim that I think they're trying to make in the discussion speculatively at this point is that the organization of the visual cortex, which is very early developing, or some of it maybe is innate to some extent, that is what dictates the organization of linguistic slash amodal, whatever you want to call this, meaning that's no longer tied to a particular perceptual modality. And I think that's a very cool idea. And they even speculate that maybe a similar thing happens in the auditory cortex. You would find something similar in the somatosensory cortex. So the idea is that these earlier developing capacities and brain regions dictate the emergent structure of the broader conceptual space that's not tied to a particular modality. Perhaps that could even say something about the nature of meaning itself. But the most intriguing thing is that this graded transition among types of representations in the cortex echoes recent findings on the relationship between perception and memory. In 2013, Christopher Baldassano, a cognitive neuroscientist at Columbia University, found an intriguing pattern when he observed neural activity in an area known to respond selectively to places. Patterns of activity toward the back of the region were correlated with patterns that characterized a known visual network. Activity in the forward part of the region seemed to be more related to activity in a memory network instead. This suggested that memory representations might involve not an exact reactivation, but rather a subtle shift across the real estate of the cortex to a location immediately adjacent to where the corresponding visual representation can be found. Over the past year, several new studies have reinforced that finding by directly comparing people's brain activity as they looked at and later recalled or imagined various images, In each case, a systematic spatial transformation marked the difference between the brain's sensory and memory representations, and the visual representations appeared just behind the associated memory ones, just as they had in Huth's language-based study. Like that study, this one seemed to indicate that perception and memory are also deeply entangled. 
Here's Baldassano. It gets at this idea that these perceptual and memory kinds of processes are really intertwined with one another and that it really doesn't make sense to think of our memory system as like a totally separate sort of workspace that doesn't interact with perception. Bryce Cool is a neuroscientist at the University of Oregon. He says this gets at the broader question of what does it mean when we remember something and how do we express that memory? Certainly, I've thought a lot about this and I think others too, that like this idea that we're recreating the perceptual experience and that's what we know it's not perfect, right? But it's sort of like, I think a lot of people have this kind of intuitive idea that memory is like a weak version the, the perceptual experience is like the roaring flame and the memory experience is like the flickering candle. But memories clearly aren't just a weaker echo of the original experience. The physical shifts seen in these recent experiments instead suggest that systematic changes in the representations themselves encode an experience that is entirely distinct, but still tethered to the original. Huth's work provides new insights into the nature of that transformation. Perhaps memory isn't as visually driven as we thought. Maybe it's more abstract, more semantic, more linguistic. Here's neuroscientist Chris Baker again. We often have this impression that we have these fantastic visual representations of things. You know, you try and imagine something and you feel like you can see it. Maybe it's actually a different type of representation that you're really generating at that time. To cool, that makes sense. We don't confuse vision for memory or vision for language that we know that when we're imagining something or remembering something, it's distinct from actually seeing it. It kind of makes sense that these would maybe actually have distinct representations in the brain. When you think about it from that perspective, then it's kind of like, well, yeah, it actually maybe doesn't make the most sense to think that memory is just going to be a complete copy, even degraded copy of perception because we don't experience it that way. When you're reading something, right, you're reading a book, we say it's always very vivid, it brings to mind these images, but we sort of mean that and we don't mean that, right? (laughs) It's not really the case that when you're reading a book, you suffer confusion where you're like, wait a second, is there a picture here or not? I don't know if anyone who suffers that confusion. If you've been doing the neuroimaging work where you're trying to show memory reactivation and, and, and you know, decode what somebody's remembering. We've, we've been so fixated on using the perceptual experience as the template that has kind of blinded us a little bit to what we probably should have known or thought more about. To test these hypotheses, researchers are now studying people who seem unable to conjure mental images, a condition called aphantasia. Bainbridge says perhaps people with aphantasia will exhibit a larger forward shift in their neural representations. That would be one that might not dwell so much on the combined visual and semantic responses, suggesting a quicker transition to abstract thought. Cool says it seems like the field is onto something that's shaken up how we think about memory and perception. Matt Carlstrom helped with this episode. I'm Susan Vallett. For more on this story, read Jordana Sapelowitz's full article, New Map of Meaning in the Brain Changes Ideas About Memory, on our website, quantamagazine.org. Quanta Magazine is an editorially independent online publication supported by the Simons Foundation to enhance public understanding of science.